So it's a moment also of readaptation of how you do political organization and politics. Unions, in most of the cases, are struggling to retain jobs and making agreements because they know that the alternative is mass unemployment. So I think that the classic spaces of social coordination and social resistance have been co-opted or have been completely brought to brought to crumbles. So I think that that's, that's the moment of, of reinventing. And, and the food system in that, in that sense is, again, a, a very useful way of, of unpacking and looking at all these struggles. And as I said before, and looking at the way you know, financialized capitalism and primitive accumulation of people and nature has permeated the most essential element of our society, I think. But the struggle in Europe and the struggle around us is probably as bad as in, in, in the global south. It's just that we don't see it because every year the European Commission puts 50 billion euro, which is 47% of its budget, in supported agricultural production. So if the European Commission wasn't doing that, we would be doing picket lines, we would be doing occupation, we would be doing struggles. But then the leap into let's organize solidarity groups and redistribute, redistribute food has been very quick. And I think it's, it's great that people organized and it's great that people acted in solidarity. But if you do that, if you redistribute excess food from supermarkets without challenging the role that supermarkets have in, in creating the poverty that you're trying to feed, we're not going to go anywhere. Actually, we're becoming even more dependent on, on that model that we should, be, we should be challenging. Welcome to the Three Ecologies podcast. Our guest for this episode is Tommaso Ferrando. Tommaso and I first met a couple of years ago during a strike at universities all across the UK. And what started then as a fight against the neoliberalization of pensions quickly turned into a disruption of the usual operations of the university more generally and provided for an incredible mobilization of students and staff in solidarity with one another. And so in a higher education system, which is otherwise dominated by constant competition and precarity and alienation in the guise of friendliness, we came together and experienced an incredible capacity to care for one another and to come together and collectively imagine the future, imagine a different future. Of course, eventually the order of the day resumed, but the relationships that were formed and the possibilities gleaned during that period of disruption has stayed with us. So now, a couple of years later, we invited Tommaso on the podcast both to reflect on that experience and also to draw parallels with his research. He is now at the University of Antwerp in the law faculty, and in his academic work, he focuses on the notion of the commons, especially in the context of struggles for food sovereignty and communal land practices. We talk about the inadequacies and failures of our food system, which especially the current coronavirus pandemic has exposed to us. Also in Europe and North America, where we're supposedly in 
uh, food secure and affluent and privileged society, but we will challenge those notions and peek behind the appearance of sufficiency of our food system, as well as the effects that our compensation for our deficient food system has on the rest of the globe. We also talk about the notion of the commons, how it's being co-opted perhaps by movements which try to use the language of communal ownership or sharing resources for very insidious projects of neoliberalization, whether it's certain mobilizations of the sharing economy or the great reset of the World Economic Forum. But we also talk about the incredible importance of a strong notion of the commons as a practice of commoning which is a political practice of coming together and building relations with each other, with animals, other beings, and land, and, and materials. Amongst other things, we also talk about Italian politics, and this is not just because Tommaso is originally from Italy and has done some research there, but because Italy is a very curious case. Uh, it's a one of the countries that experiences the most unusual climate events, the highest number of those in Europe, and uh, recently was, for instance, the Italian Alps were covered in Saharan desert sand, uh, a phenomenon that made the rounds on social media as well, but also because of the political situation in Italy, both currently with the so-called technical government under the leadership of Mario Draghi, Super Mario, the former head of the European Central Bank, assuming power there with the collaboration of the very right-wing forces, which the technocrats are always made out to be the last firewall, the sort of last guard that, that protects us from those very right-wing forces. So those recent developments in Italy we talk about, but also we talk about the post-2008-2009 uh, crisis in Italy, the austerity measures and how the politics there really um, thwarted some of the efforts to uh, reintroduce practices of commoning with regards to land and water and food production. So this is a very wide-ranging conversation and we hope you'll enjoy it as much as we did. I'm really, really excited that this project that Will and I have started like at the end of, towards the end of last year and last fall, that is giving me now the opportunity to like reach out to you again, because uh, sometimes like Will and I was, we're just talking about it, that especially during this time, it's, it feels like we're so stripped of these opportunities where we just get to mingle and where just things happen, you know, like the places where actually things happen, whether they're like dinners between students and professors or 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 the place where we met in the midst of like 
a strike that really disrupted the whole university operation. And the funny thing that I also just told Will is that I actually I just vaguely knew that you were affiliated with the law faculty because you were just around the corner from geography where I was. And so we were just, our picket lines were like neighboring. So, and then um, the funny thing is that I feel like we have, like we have already jammed together in a way that's that somehow the real thing that somehow which isn't to diminish the other stuff that's going on in the university but it's almost like that's the genuine foundation on which you can then talk about the themes like what 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 do you do research on and whatever and then I can look at your research and I can be like oh wow it's fascinating it's like about commons and the fact that now there's this combination between the practice where we met was a was a real like attempt for students and staff to come together and to to do some commoning to to create to insist on the university being a common practice and making the the kind of the spark of a strike about pensions into an opportunity to actually affirm or to at least try to affirm and in some ways it always fails obviously but in so but the fact that we're talking now like what is it like three years after that is oh, that's man. for me the product and like some relationships that i know of that have come out of that out of that situation and these are for me the real products and um so that's for me also part of the mission with this podcast which we're going to do by way of talking about your research as well because but it, that's never an end in itself the, the 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 goal is to somehow start to uh especially in a time when these these opportunities are so limited to create a little bit of space for people to actually hear some voices that they might not otherwise hear and especially in a in a register that they might not otherwise hear and the funny thing is that this is our you're our sixth guest i think and like you're the third one where the big theme is food where you could kind of call it like it's about food and we never intended that so too much time at home cooking during the lockdown <laughs> and now we're all becoming experts <laughs> but that's actually but that's actually because i i genuinely don't know how you got to food and what role like food is playing for you in your current like research or whatever or in the way you think about these things but it's interesting i guess because the probably the food is maybe more the coincidental factor for you and the commons framing is more the 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 horse that's driving the cart but maybe i'm wrong i don't know how did you how did you get to food well, that's a that's a good uh, good uh, question, and the way in which you were framing in between between what came first, if food or the commons, is uh, is definitely something that I should spend more time of my life uh, thinking about. But I think if we can go back, because I think it's it's crucial what you were saying about the the strike and and the fact that three years after we are here, and I think that that's a common again talking about commoning as a as a political action of, of being together for a purpose. I think that that was a moment of care and probably one of the few moments of, of care and self-care, but also care for the others and care for an ideal that we that we experienced in the context of higher education and university. And I think what, what came clear, what was very visible and evident was the amazing potential that we all had 
and how the institutional framework of the university was pre preventing us and, and from, from exploring it and, 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 and expressing it. And that moment of disruption was fantastic because you got to know people around you and they got to know you in a way that probably the institutional framework would have never allowed. And so, you know, saying, oh, three years after we are here talking about your research and your activism, but actually I spoke more about my own research and my own way of seeing the world and the way in which I was combining, you know, academic hats with non-academic hats and et cetera, on the picket line in those moments of chaos and in those moments of, of convergence. And I think that that's, that's crucial because I think well, if we go back and talk about university university afterwards, the creation of those spaces and the, and the lack of those spaces is even more evident now with this hyper-individualized approach that we have to, to, to education where everything is happening online and et cetera. So we're kind of missing care at the communal level, at the broader community level, but really missing care within the smaller community of the, of the higher education. And I think that we are losing an, an incredible amount of potential, an incredible amount of innovation, an incredible amount of, of political desire. And the consequences of that, unfortunately, would be really, really long-term. And, and, and I would say the strike in Bristol was one experience, the you know, pickets and the occupation that we had at Warwick two years before. I think these are moments that sign a little bit the, the interaction that you have and then the the comradism that you that you keep and that allow you then to talk about you know research, food, commons, or you know life in general, whatever it is, at years of distance. But you know that there is this element of in, in, that we share, which is at the end of the day we were trying to take care of each other's future by standing on on the picket line. Because at the end of the day, I don't think is a is a coincidence that the that the strike was for, for pensions. Like the strike was to to put forward a vision of the future that was different from the vision that a private fund wanted for us. I think that that was truly important because you had on the same line people who were about to retire and new generations of young students and people who just entered the higher education and even in some places people who were not in the university and they truly converge in this idea of the future. And I think that, that again, like the capacity of being together and thinking collectively about the future is, is what that strike did. And what the commons idea that I'm trying to, to use is also a lot about and, 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 and that's how I think all the things are, are connected and why those moments are missed. <laughs> I think that it would be amazing if instead of having a pandemic we had like another massive strike and, and, and other moments of, of that because they also refresh and remind people that it's, um, that it's feasible and the draft spaces. I, I, no, I don't know what your experience is, but then in, in Bristol for me it was very much a hyper-commercialized experience till the moment that the strike started and the strike reminded me that there were other people that were struggling and, 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 and they were um, disenchanted as I as I was getting and there was, was possibility. So anyhow, leaving the strike, which uh, is definitely some, some very important moment in, in the creation also of our, of our interactions and identities. Uh, food is... Um, Food is incidental in the sense that I didn't structure a, a research career around food and I uh, wasn't seeing myself as someone who was going to be becoming obsessed with, uh, with food systems. Um, until I, I read more and more that uh, the food system, uh, and in particular the, the sort of dominant corporate-based food system, can, can become a very useful tool to talk constructively and politically about capitalism and all the problems that capitalism uh, has generated, both in the past and the present and, and about the future. 
So it becomes incidental, but it really opens up significant amount of doors for all the possible conversation that you want to have on a picket line or you want to have elsewhere on the picket line. Because food is something that we try to do every day, something that we try to have access on a daily basis, something that is crucial and fundamental for our experience and existence. And because of that, is also extremely pressured when it comes to remuneration and, and, and accumulation. So it really, it became evident at a certain point. I, I started working on land uh, and, and large-scale projects, and, and, and then it became it, it clear that it was about food, it was about production, it was about imposing a vision of what the food system should have been over the diversity uh, of, of spectra, of, of possibilities, and, and, and et cetera. And so that, that really was what attracted me to food and the possibility that I can sit at a table with you know, my vice chancellor, or uh, one of my students, and we can have a conversation on food. And I, and I think that there will be moments of convergence and moments of reflection that can trigger much more political awareness and much more disappointment and discomfort, because at the end of the day, that's the way in which I kind of see my interaction with, uh, with certain groups um, than, other, than other issues. Um, and so far, it's, it's working. I think it's, uh, it's great to see that, well, that you had already a few podcasts on, on food and that the... The critical or the, the anti-establishment approach to, to food and food systems uh, are taking taking place. Of course, with the with the risk, then then we fall into the hipsterism that we were talking about, and that uh, we create these islands of uh, you know healthy, fair, and sustainable, but just for me in the ghetto community and not for the people out there, or that it gets hyper co-opted, and that's why. It's not just about you know, food and food system, but it's like the, the politics of food and the politics of, of food system. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that really made me think was this idea of eating as, a, as an agrarian act. So when you're eating, you're somehow participating into the agrarian policy, but at the same time eating as a political act, like a political action and eating as a, as a political moment where not about, oh, I'm a consumer, I'm going to be buying something, I'm going to be political. No, it's about I want to build because I'm part of all of that, so I cannot pretend that I'm not involved in, in, in what is happening and not involved in this in the system. And so I have to be politically active in order to, to do things. So that's that's why that's why food and, and, and the commons somehow came at the at the same time. Uh, the commons was for an interesting initiative uh, that happened in Italy in 2011, I think, was the, the referendum. Yeah. Um, which is an, an interesting connection, actually, now with the, with current politics. So in 2011, um, the prime minister in Italy uh, got sent home because he didn't have the majority, and Mario Monti was appointed by, and then and not appointed, but indicated and then voted by the majority in parliament as the technician who was going to be saving Italy because 2011 was the, the peak of the financial crisis and the peaks and, and Italy is going to be bust and, and et cetera. And one of the first things that Monti did was to privatize or to try to privatize water and land. Now we are 10 years after and, and we kind of, history repeats itself and we're going to have probably a new so-called technical government <laughs> in Italy, um, where in the name of efficiency and effectiveness and the most accurate use of recovery money, we will probably go down, down similar patterns or, or, or not. So in 2011, in Italy, there was this referendum on, on water as a commons. 
and there were almost 17 million people who voted because uh, they thought that water was a common good and they didn't want privatization and mainly they were particularly upset by the idea that you can um, not so much appropriate water but that they couldn't remunerate your investment on water so this idea that like, you should not be making money out of an essential good and I, and I was indirectly part of that and, and I participated a little bit to the campaign and, 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 and to the, the more logistical part of, of organizing the thing um, and that's my my intro to to the comments, and then the two things have been somehow proceeding proceeding together, and uh, and hopefully there is more and more on 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 both, both on on food and both on on the commons, uh, and more and more on the political attitude and approach to the commons, which I think is is the one that is worth exploring, which is the. Not so much how do you govern a natural resource within a community, but what kind of principles, what kind of uh, objectives, what kind of practices do you put in place in order to to build a, a society that is you know, ecologically structured, uh, anti-colonial, anti-patriarchal, uh, and so on and so forth. And that is happening uh, slowly. I think we we still have a long way to go in order to understand that commons is not just to say oh an alternative between private and public there is commons um, uh, but it's, it's happening the other thing that is happening is that luckily the people doing the commons or talking about the commons are increase, increasingly accepting that maybe we don't have to use the word commons for everything and maybe we can just hear other people in other places and listen to them and, and, and use the vocabulary, the words and the, and the approaches that they are using. And that is not because one day someone in Europe came out with the idea of commons. Now, everything that looks like a commons sounds like a commons, smells like a commons, should be a commons. So there's a little bit of this decolonizing of the commons movement that is, uh, that is slowly happening, which I think is, is very much, much welcome. But yeah, I don't know if that answers any of the points that you that you raised. But. Yeah, I think I think we're done now. With the <laughs> Perfect. Due time. <laughs> you you know what I thought was was what made me really like, almost laugh out loud was that the the one of the crucial articles of this new sort of round of austerity post the that 2011 victory in Italy for the water being a public good one of the important articles was called article 66 and i just thought that that was so did, did like the emperor from star wars design the, <laughs> the, the like execute never by accident never by accident For me, just thinking about the, the the struggle that we shared, and then reading about these struggles that you're researching, there's like a profound resonance already going on that feels like it just needs to be amplified. It doesn't need to be construed altogether, but it's mm -hmm. the way in which you know when we were in 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 Bristol in 2000, what was it, 18? That that there was so much student solidarity because not like. Of course, students also care about the pensions of their staff. But um, I mean, the reason why, like you, 
I guess like your pension wasn't particularly on, uh, it, it wasn't, what I'm trying to say is like, it wasn't just sort of like uh, claim claims to like, oh, my pension is on the, is, uh, is, is in risk now. So I'm going to turn out for this, but actually lots of people who galvanize the most uh, energy and the most enthusiasm were people who use that spark to like just channel their general frustration about the, the constant expropriation and like you could call it primitive accumulation of the like the social primitive accumulation of the university the 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 roles that we're stuck in as like students that are at every turn of the way individualized or staff that's also like everyone there was so much people being so scared as well it was incredible it was an incredible moment to see like shit we're all frightened here and of course you always had like cynical staff and cynical students who were just like demanding their service to be given to them and whatever but i think in a way what we're trying to do with the podcast as well is like insisting on that on those resonances already being there that 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 we had that actually thinking that you first need to build a bridge between like land struggles and university struggles is actively ignoring the resonance that's already there which is like not the same situation but there is pain on both sides about the way in which we're constantly being prevented from actually working together <laughs> and that's yet that's the, the only yet yet that's the only thing that sustains the whole sh- that keeps the whole ship running but yeah yeah and i think that that's one of the outcomes of the way in which globalization has been built as a as a political and economic project that it, people are interconnected but at the same time isolated and i think that this idea of the fragmentation of struggles the fragmentation of revendications the fragmentation of of challenges geographically but even in the same geography you may have people like working next to each other and they don't know that you know at the end of the day their struggles are somehow aligned that their struggle can resonate and the struggle can be can be compounded and and that's the problem with what we're experiencing now like it was hard to organize before it was hard to create solidarity before how do you create solidarity in a world that has been pushed and and that's has been clearly uh, directed towards the invisibility of people because we are scared of people, we are scared of viruses, we are scared of being contaminated. So the least people we see, the least people are together in the same pay- space, the least people can actually share share a geography, the better it is for our health. But that is going to be clearly having repercussion in, in, in this lightening, this idea of like, fuck, like you are doing this, I'm doing this, that's my reivindication, that's your reivindication. So the two things definitely go together and we work, we, we can work uh, together for, for that. And, uh, and then we, we need to, to be more creative and I think, you know, podcast and, and reaching out is, is a great way. I think all of us really care and, and we, we should be walking the extra mile in order to, to guarantee that these spaces are, are there and, and not being afraid of you know, revendicating whatever it is, digitally or non-digitally, and not just because we cannot be standing next to each other on the on the door of a university. That doesn't mean that we cannot create a picket or we cannot create this kind of, of solidarity. Although, you know, everyone is extremely tired and everyone is extremely worried and, and scared, and that really brings extra extra elements of, of concern. But I think, to go back to your point on, on, on solidarity, I think what the strike in Bristol presented me with was the refreshing atmosphere of being protected or at least of seeing people could protect me and that I could protect in a space that otherwise was not really a space of comfort. There was not really a space where I 
could openly manifest all of my political desires and all my political uh, aspiration. And I think that, you know, we're not just, re- we'll be reinventing the wheel or we'll be talking about something that is super obvious, but, you know, if you if you create the space of comfort in your place of work, whether as a university or whatever it is, then it, actually you have the capacity and the energy to to, to reach out or to be reached and, and to create this, this dialogue among, among situations and realities that, as you were saying before, like... Uh, already in connection and in contact they just that no one could be pointing the finger at, at, at that thing at that thing happening and the food system in that in that sense is again a, a very useful way of of unpacking and looking at all these struggles and as i said before and looking at the way you know financialized capitalism and primitive accumulation of people and nature has permeated the most essential element of our society i think which is you know survival and you really like, and what we, we try to do, and I think what what is interesting to 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 present and to work on is 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 this idea that that interconnection is not just logistic. That interconnection is people's desire, aspiration, frustration, violation, subordination, and and the moment you create this this visibility to each other, I think you have a space. You have a space for for movement that is different from from the one that you would normally have in your in your tiny, tiny hub. It's not, it's not easy. I think it was very interesting in Bristol. Again, there was the, the strike of the delivery riders that was organized by some of the comrades that were also active with the, with the university strike, right? So you have a very well organized cut strike, wildcat strike of just out of the blue with like happening. And then you have these people protesting outside of McDonald's where there are a lot of workers that are equally exploited, if not poorly treated, by somehow the same mechanism and the same logic of higher extraction of value and rent from cheap food. So you have a cheap McDonald's burger and you know delivered by a person that is treated cheaply, but that burger is is produced by someone, is assembled by someone who is treated poorly and considered cheap and, and the entire chain of McDonald's. So that, that was really the moment where I was like, if that strike, if that action of delivery was capable of going the extra mile and, and connecting with the McDonald's workers and, and creating this short circuit, even more than they are doing, that would be fantastic. That would be really like saying that it's not that you're striking, as you were saying before, it's not that I'm striking for my own personal remuneration I'm striking because I'm, I'm aspiring at a different way of organizing things and that's that's the, the food system is for me it's really about we all should be aspiring for a different way of, of producing consuming distributing food so that all these dots should be kept together it's not about making sure that someone is making more money or someone is more sustainable than others because otherwise there's always going to be someone who's going to be was going to be you know the under exploit over exploited and um, and etc and this could go on and on. And I think that we can we can then at a certain point talk about the Green Deal and the green transition of Europe and, and, and all these things of, you know, creating, instead of creating convergence, creating, like seeing the world through competitiveness rather than cooperation, which I think is, is what we were trying to dismantle also with the, yeah. with the strike.
there's a real I recently read I, I shared some of those some passages with with both of you as well I've recently been reading a lot of Moten and Harney's work I don't know if you've ever come across it before I think it's really it gives a lot it gives some really interesting language to exactly these struggles and one of the things they they talk about is also like the kind of the subtle difference between they're not quite sure about which words they want to use, but between a request and a demand or a request and an appeal, that an, a request is always like requesting more pay or requesting better treatment or whatever, but you appeal to authority with a request. Whereas, the, and they're, they're kind of saying like, no, we need to make demands where we appeal to each other and not just to authority to grant us some some slightly more favorable conditions. And I wonder if that's kind of what something that I was just reading out to Will. I don't know how much you're, you're sort of clued into this kind of conversation at all, but like the, uh, I've been paying more attention to how, and it starts with something like the sharing economy, which I would like to hear what you think about that. But the way that I often encountered the sharing economy is as a sort of like, as, as I, the, an expression that I like is plugging the holes of neoliberalism where under the guise of like com community solidarity and neighborhood relations and whatever, what's actually happening is that you have this sort of like, and, and I'm not saying that that isn't also happening. I'm not saying that the sharing economy cannot be taken into other directions, but the discourse that sometimes emerges emerges around the sharing economy of like, oh, we we don't all need a, a, a power drill. If one of us has it and we're all networked via the internet, like what are the odds of both of like more than one person needing it at a time? So we can only have one between all five neighbors and this kind of cute idea of sort of like private communism or whatever, like sort of like practice your, you can like, like a good Protestant, you can practice your political ideology at home now as well. And I was just reading through, I don't know if you saw this, but like one of the big, one of the big agenda items of the great reset of the World Economic Forum, one of the big ag agenda items of them is that they have this thing of like welcome to 2030. And then one of the, and then they kind of paint this picture of this like utopian society. And one of the things that they say is like, welcome to the year 2030, welcome to my city, or should I say our city? I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or any clothes. And it goes like on and on in this kind of, and the mantra is like, you're not going to own anything, but you're going to be happy. And so with that, uh, I'm not sure to what extent these kinds of agendas actually actively embrace the word of commons, but it seems like there's at least a sort of a, a neoliberal version of like common property and let's not own anything. I, I didn't know this, this uh, the World Economic Forum, welcome to 2030. Um, what um, what I think is is interesting is what are the premises of the vision that they are putting forward in terms of why you don't own things and who actually owns things, and then the other aspect which I think is always underestimated and never taken into consideration is that the the digital transition, the digital transformation that they want to put in place, cabling everyone and making everything absolutely reachable by the internet and etc is going to have a massive material impact on people and planet. So there is the idea, welcome to the city, that it's going to be built with minerals and work exploited in the Ecuadorian Salazar or in the Chinese mines of rare earths. But you don't see them because at the end of the day, you're in your 
in your city where only the final product counts and who cares about this kind of excavation that is behind this urbanization. And I think that this, like, I'm not, I'm slowly looking into cities because at the end of the day, the political agenda is going towards cities at the center much more than, than states because of all the, the, the practical reasoning of by 2080, probably 80% of the population is going to be urban and et cetera. But I think also because it represents an opportunity of investment and an opportunity of return on the investment that the urban spaces don't represent any longer. So the more you build and the more you pile up in concentrated spaces, the more services you are providing, the more houses, the more privatized sanitation and health and et cetera, the more you can make money out of that. And you really want to have billions of people that that are, that are going to be participated into that and just turning a blind eye on, on the material origin of, of everything that you're doing or on inequality and all the things that we, that we know pretty well. The co-optation of the commons is happening and the co-optation of the commons, I think, is, is inevitable like any other uh, topic and like any other word or tool or instrument. Uh, you have the co-optation of, of the just and green transition where for the three of us probably means three different things, but then there is the a normalized discourse of what just and green is that has been put forward by the, the European Commission that is clearly a way of competing on the market and, and being ahead of the curve when it comes to fighting against China rather than something that really has a social and ecological element behind it. The, the point, I think, with the commons and this idea of, of sharing and the sharing economy is that it can happen the moment that you don't have a political understanding or you don't put in practice a political uh, perspective or perception of the commons. And when you think that the space of intervention that you have doesn't have to do with the, with the way in which the status quo is being created. And I think that what the political vision of the, of the commons is this historical element of historical inequalities, historical subordination, colonization, decades, if not centuries of, of accumulation by dispossession and et cetera, that tell you like a commoning and commons-based vision of society, and then we can talk about the food system more in particular, is inevitably linked with a redressal and a redefinition of that. And so you can think about my city or our city uh, in a way that, you know, you take into consideration how the city came into being and the distribution of resources and wealth and power and et cetera, and you create our city. On our city could be where three billionaires own the entirety of the city and everyone is, is, a, is a landlord, as I saw it, is a tenant. Everyone is a tenant to someone else, which is actually happening. And I was reading the other day that now the new trend in, uh, in constructions is buy, like buying land and building New, new constructions for renting and not for selling because people cannot afford it any longer and because it's much more rentable, it's much more remunerative. So already the mentality of capitalism has appropriated that by saying, well, we're doing the same, the same gig. We're taking land, buying it for, for a few money, building up, extracting resources from, from the planet and et cetera, extracting labor. But then because the people out there cannot afford it any longer, we're just putting them as, as tenants, in any case, these people need a place where to, where to sleep. So if that's our city, I think that that doesn't really challenge what the basics of, uh, of distribution of wealth and resources and power are. So that would be completely incompatible with a, with a vision of the commons that is, that is a political vision of the commons and that is historically constructed. Um, and I think 
to, in order to avoid that, it's, it's important that the conversation happens and it's important that people are constantly reminded of how did we get where we are and also what will be needed in order to build those cities that they, that they want to build in terms of labor, in terms of natural resources and, and et cetera. And, and it's definitely not that. So uh, you think about, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a, a, a PhD student to, to work on that. You think about the notion of smart city and how now everything has to be smart and et cetera. But the notion of smart doesn't contain any reference or very limited reference to the socioeconomic impact of the socioeconomic conditions in that city and the environmental impact and the environmental implication of building the city. So you call something smart by completely forgetting that there are people and planet that are essential to the ecosystem that you are that you are talking about. So that's the kind of selective vision that then allows you to talk about sharing and etc. And, and and the political vision of the commons is has to be non-selective, has to be like holistic as much as possible, both horizontally but also vertical in terms of, of timing. So really like a, a strong historical look and, and a challenge to the present that is that is based on the on that and uh, it hurts like in, at all levels like because we are not ready and and I speak from a position of privilege I think that I'm the first one who has a hard time thinking about what the repercussion and the implication of a strong historical look would be on on the privilege that I've been living and, and the privilege that the society that I'm familiar with has been living but I think is um, is essential in particular on a on a finite planet where the rhetoric that you make the pie larger so that everyone can eat doesn't doesn't work any longer because there is no bigger pie that can be made unless we are happy to see extinction and uh, and everything else something about the political vision of the commons um, that, that you've mentioned, which is distinct but connected to the legal vision and the much more sort of technocratic um, vision. I, I was really enjoying this article that you wrote with Alessandra Quarta, Italian property outlaws from the theory of the commons to the praxis of occupation. And you, you touched on it a bit earlier, the way that um, commons became this um, issue of popular democracy and referenda around 2011. And one of the questions I wanted to ask is, what is the current state of, of that in Italy? You wrote this article in, in 2015, talking about the sort of interplay between uh, jurists and legal theorists involved in this uh, Commissione Rodotà. Um, interacting with or feeding off of um, the movement of occupations, which of course has a much longer tradition in Italy, going back to the 60s and 70s, if not before. So sort of how have things progressed um, in, in the past five years or so? And, and what is what is the current state of, of this strategy or, or movement or, or whatever you might call it? First of all, con congratulations for your Italian. Like the, yeah. the pronunciation of Rodota was perfect. 
Um, so I've been somehow like distancing myself geographically from what is happening in, in Italy. So I'm not as involved or as, uh, as I was back then. And, and even back then, I, I must say that I was way more comfortable with my academic hat than, uh, than with my sort of go out there and experience things hat. And that paper in particular is a paper that really uh, benefited from the direct participation of Alessandra in the commission, in, in, in the work uh, behind the occupations, in the legal advocacy in order to, to maintain the occupations and in creating this new legal construction of the, of the commons. What has been happening recently, so the, the Rodota Commission was a, a very much institutionalized project that had one objective. It was that of redrafting the rules of property law in Italy so that certain goods would have been considered neither public nor private, would have been considered commons. And that would have required an extra level of protection and an extra level of care, and also a diffuse possibility of protecting them. So it was very conservative, it was very much, things are going in the wrong way, we need to take something out of the market, we cannot allow privatization, we cannot allow commodification of nature, art, and etc. And we want to distribute to as many people as possible the right to defend these, these goods. Then, what, interestingly, at the same time, there was this dialogue with the occupation, and the occupations were much more proactive. So the occupation were not only to prevent from marketization, but they were really to bring back spaces into the collective uh, sphere or into the collective um, community. So they not only occupied because a good was going to be sold, but they started generating commons value, commons utilities. And, and that was the moment, I think, that also the commission wrote and some of the members in the commission wrote realized that the commons is not about just about safeguarding, but it's really about producing and producing these different forms of utility and the different form of value that is not mercantile, so it's not exchange and, and et cetera. So for a few years, the things have been going somehow wellish and there were like new forms of occupation. In the last two years, uh, some of the occupation has been, have been uh, evicted. Uh, the um, Cinema Palazzo has been evicted recently in, uh, in Rome. Uh, other theatres have, uh, have been cleared up. I think that the more the crisis and, and the pandemic has been, has been a trigger of that, there's been the take, like, administration took advantage of the, of the pandemic and the fact that people are not in the street and it's very hard uh, organize in order to, to enforce addiction. requires permanent uh, commoning requires sort of permanent interaction as well exactly and, and requires and requires and, and I think that in the article we try to say that and, and it requires a constant dialogue and communication with the rest of the community even the community that is not directly involved in the management or in the organizations or in the in the production of those commonings. And so if you can rely on the community and the society because they recognize your legitimacy and the role that you, are, that you are playing, they may come and rescue at the time of need because they've been benefiting from all the utility and all the goods and all the spaces that you have created. The moment that that necessity arises and you cannot go out because you're in violation of a, of a lockdown, it's way harder to rely on that. But also on other comrades from other parts of the country that are not going to be capable of you know, standing and resisting uh, with you. And then we still live in a state of emergency, a permanent state of emergency, and the fact itself or being next to each other in order to prevent a, an eviction is a violation of the state of emergency because you cannot gather with other people. Yeah. So there is the extra that's, level. 
at the very beginning of the pandemic, Giorgio Agamben wrote these kind of uh, articles that everyone sort of said were very hysteric. And I think there were points to them being hysteric, yes. But at the same time, one of the things he was pointing out is that this constant state, and that he's been pointing out for decades now, is that this this constant state of emergency is really going to be used, you know, against the left and against like actual movements of of this precise type. Um, yeah, I think it's been an intensification of something that in different parts of the world has been experienced uh, for decades, if not for, for centuries. I think that uh, in Europe and in the, in the spaces that I'm more familiar with, the, the state of emergency has been experienced depending on class in other parts of and, and gender and for sure and, and race for sure. But I think that the class element has been has been very strong in the, in the relationship between the authority and the emergential interventions and uh and the construction of society in other parts of the world has been, you know, indigeneity or has been has been much more like the fact that you would not recognize the authority of a state that is imposed on, on your territory. So I think that there are places in the world that the state of emergency have been living it uh, for, for centuries. And, and interestingly, we had this conversation with some land activists right at the moment where the, the pandemic started kicking in. And we were not supposed to talk about the pandemic and the state of emergency, but then eventually like, it became almost inevitable to talk about organizing at the time of pandemic and, and, and what they were doing. And, and for them, for some of them, it was clear that the pandemic had brought an extra level of threat, an extra level of, of pressure and oppression by, by the state. But other people said, you know, I had tanks uh, in my village a week ago. It's not the pandemic that is going to be making the difference, right? So if the army is present and the army was here a week before the pandemic was officially declared, it's not a pandemic that is going to be changing that. Maybe it can be a little bit worse, but still the level of violence that we are experiencing on a daily basis and the level of, of oppression that we are experiencing. So I think it's important not to exceptionalize too much. And I think that we, if we exceptionalize what has been happening for the last year, we lose sight with what actually we were experiencing or a lot of people in the world were experiencing before the pandemic was declared and the way in which, you know, state authority and, 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 and the you know, state capital interactions have been building constantly on a daily basis award uh, to, their, to their interest. So I lost completely track of where I was, but yes, the commons. So what has been happening in Italy uh, in the last year and a half is that the Comitato Rodotà, which was born as a very institutionalized project, then started this caravan that we also describe in the in the paper. So they started going around the country to kind of have a more participatory experience of listening to the people uh, in the different spaces in Italy to understand what the commons were were for them and what was needed and etc. That is now a new space uh, that is uh, is becoming a sort of a recognized association that has started a set of online meetings and really using the technology in order to reach out to, to as many people as possible um, to start gathering not only ideas, but also to recreate network that at the beginning was very academic and now they are trying to recreate a network that is much more horizontal and, and transversal. So it's now called Tramandare, which is uh, like the, the series of events that they are organizing. And Tramandare is to tell to the next generation or to pass it on. So I think bringing in an element of temporality in, the, in, in what they're doing and unpacking the notion of the commons, which is 
first of all, about processes and procedure and then therefore like the commoning and how they are doing things. So I think they became much better at trying to create spaces that reflect this horizontality that they want to, to have. And then moving away from this idea of public property, private property and the commons, but really talking about sectors and areas. So they've been talking about health, they've been talking about care, they've been talking about food and say, okay, so let's engage with macro areas and do not focus that much on the legal technicalities, but let's really think and imagine a decommodification of that sector that has been highly privatized or a decommodification of this specific area that has been taken away from, from the people. Um, the political, like, on the political nature of commoning, I think there are two, two things to, to be said. The first one is that it's extremely complicated and, and time-consuming and energy-consuming and and I am extremely appreciative and, and, and respect so much anyone who is trying to live and build society and communities around this, this notion of, of commoning as a sort of political act of, of participation, redistribution, anti-patriarchy, decolonization, decommodification, and, and etc. The second point, I think, is that even if you are not on your daily basis living up to the standard that some communities and some groups are are implementing on a daily basis. I think that the, the values and the aspirations are extremely important to political horizons. And, and, and I don't think that if people cannot live up to the standards of you know, the people in Mondeggi near Florence that have occupied public land, they have been involved in the community, they have been revigorating and, and an entire orchard of olive trees and etc. Even if you don't live up to the standard, I think the living up to the standards that they are implementing in terms of, of the political horizon is um, is already a, a first starting point of uh, of what you know we can do politically in terms of the, the vision that we want to at least see reproduced uh, around us. Um, Brussels, for example, had because um, I'm now living in Brussels. Uh, Brussels had this four or five meetings organized by um, a library on, on the, the urban commons. And I think that that already was an interesting attempt to reason at the level of a city of one million people to introduce elements of not only the sharing economy the way you described before, but also like the political convergence and the political uh, dialogue that we can have in, in a city to to reappropriate the city. I think that when we talk about the city, like the, the right to the city and, and, the, and the urban commons somehow overlap. And that's that's what I think is important, to transform the idea of the commons into a political project that then reclaims the city and, 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 and really dismantles all those inequalities that you see at the level at the level of the city. And at the same time is aware of all those other places and all those other people around the world that are needed to make the city what it is. Because otherwise we, we make the mistake of saying, oh, it's just about us and we can be super cool and super, you know, commoning and et cetera. And then we keep exploiting you know, anyone who's producing the, the material that we need for, for the construction of the city. I, 
I wonder what your take is on this, but there is maybe a danger still in like intellectual circles or also like in sort of citizen urban kind of fora where you kind of discuss these things that the term like food sovereignty can be can become this can be can have a certain attractiveness which I'm definitely not against I think it's good that it's becoming an attractive term but I think there's still this sort of idea that it's like a luxury like oh we could strive for food sovereignty wouldn't that be nice wouldn't we feel better about ourselves but then you look at the current crisis and it's not as if I wanted to like draw a straight line from like the where the coronavirus came from and how it was facilitated and and like how it spread and whatever, but there are several factors in it where our food unsovereignty like it's not that we're at a zero degree and then we could we could get an extra star on our like extra sticker by the teacher kind of uh, thing and be like oh you're also you're the food sovereign of the week kind of as we've been playing with this like green city crap about like bristol being the green city of the 2015 or whatever and when will was visiting me like cycling through bristol you you get like 30 years of smoking in like a weekend or something you know but that's the green capital of europe of 2015 and so they're they're like the it's just, I was just also reminded of how, for instance, here in Germany, like uh, Tönnies, one of the biggest uh, meat producers, industrial meat producers, um, there was a scandal here as pretty much in every country with meat meat processing plants being a massive uh, like factor in spreading COVID and their workers being massively at risk. And then probably also like a lot of migrant workers who are but like inner EU migrant workers who also move between those places. And so like these, like these types of food unsovereignty actually put us more at risk with the coronavirus. And at the same time, they're then in the, in the midst of the coronavirus in the position to claim as like, I think the, 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 the CEO of Tenius did on national television, where he kind of claimed that they had a mandate to provide the German population with food. And so it's kind of, it's, it's this crazy situation where the very forces that are, if not producing, then at least facilitating the dangers of the 21st century that you'd like, that, that Bill Gates is is really excited about, <laughs> um, but like all these dangers. I mean, like the next thing not, might be like a resistant bacteria from a poultry farm, you know. And like that's those are like we're paying right now the cost. Like part of the cost that we're paying right now is our food unsovereignty, and people still think that food sovereignty is this like nice to have, and that we can sort of like look at some Bolivian a- Andean farmers and be like, oh, that's so great, and like we can, you know, but. I, well, I I don't know. Is that correct me if I, I'm wrong? No, no. But I think that you you know, put in a very straightforward way the the risk that if we don't get rid of our colonial modernist approach to things, everything can become a catastrophe. And at the same time, you pointed out something that is was extremely evident during the pandemic. So the system that is based on the exploitation of nature, animal, and, 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 and people, claim its essentiality to be inevitable for the continuation of the species, because actually it is, because if we don't eat, we die, and kind of reinforced its way of being and reinforced its atrocities 
just because it was justified in a way where it was clear that the pandemic, as much as the SARS pandemic in 2003, as much as the crazy cow, like few years before in 1994, I think, as much as the millions of pigs that had been killed in China in 2020, and no one is talking about, like in 2019 and 2020, the largest epidemic of swine flu in China, killing, like forcing to kill millions of pigs, so these things were happening at the same time that then suddenly, you know, the the time that the virus became a became a thing, already showing that there is a system of production that is completely unbearable, that is no good for people, that is actually detrimental for people in terms of health, but in terms of condition of labor, that is horrible for the planet. Like 35% of the greenhouse gases overall in the world are linked. Uh, directly with the with the food system, including waste and etc. So the system doesn't work. And then you have the pandemic, and the alternative didn't exist. And I think that that's what has been a problem from a perspective of a, of someone who's been looking at food system and critically engaging with food system for a bit. That the moment where the strength of the alternative, the capacity of the alternative to feed fairly, healthily, equally, justly society was not ready. So I don't know if the crisis came too early or if at the end of the day, we never really worked hard enough in order to establish systems that were there when needed. But what is clear is that when the, you know, uh, Germany flew in people from Romania or, or, or the UK did the same thing from, from Eastern Europe, they were not doing that because they are, well, they do that because they're nasty in the way that they treat them and et cetera. But it was true that there was, such a dependency on that kind of labor that had been established and there was not an alternative and there was not the political capacity in that moment to say, instead of flying people in from Romania, let's rethink the food system. And now if you read at the time of pandemic, at the time that global interconnection interdependence has been spreading the virus, that our system has been responsible for ecological and social disasters, the World Bank, the OECD, the IMF, the Food and Agriculture Organization, they all push for more trade and more interconnection. So the biggest problem they had in Argentina and Brazil was keeping the ports open because they had to ship soy from Argentina and Brazil to Germany to feed the pigs that could feed, that could be then slaughtered by the people who then got COVID and became an outbreak. And so, then shipped to China. Germany is one of the biggest suppliers then, of pork for China as well. Especially which is, now that China had to cull yeah. the, all the pigs because of the because of swine flu. So I think, unfortunately, then like a year ago, the the food sovereign alternative was and still is an elite, at least in Europe, an elite project that gave food to the people who are depending on, you know, the five acres farm in uh, in Coventry or Simseal in uh, in Bristol. If you're part of that tiny elite of 60 families that has direct access to your farmer and can afford £10 a week, you probably didn't feel that there was a shortage of any fruit and vegetable. But if you are a person that on average buys from a discount cheap food because you have a very limited salary or you're on benefits, you were the most affected. So it's a system that has been failing all levels, but it's a system that at the moment is feeding those who cannot afford anything better. So I think that the the kind of consideration of the of the alternative food movements and the food sovereignty movement uh, is first of all 
Talking about food sovereignty is different from context to context. Secondly, it cannot be just a procedural matter. It has to be rooted in the community and really has to be aware of the limits that exist in terms of accessibility. But third, it has to be a political project and it doesn't have to be the farmer organizing with 60 families. It has to be a political program that has to be pushed through with budget, funding, regulation and reforms so that the next time that the next crisis comes, because there will be a next crisis coming and et cetera, the system will be capable of supporting and supporting everyone. And that's really what's, what has been missing a year and a half ago. So I've been researching a little bit the response of Italian cities. So in Italy, uh, the level of food poverty, like food poverty increased by 80%, more or less. Cities had no resources. The largest chunk of budget that the Italian government has disbursed has been to feed people. They almost disbursed a billion euro just to feed people who couldn't make it and still cannot make it. So did they have a plan on how to feed people? No, they never thought about it. Did they have a plan on how to use public money, a billion euro, in order to support local production, strengthen you know, access to markets and, and, and et cetera, in the way that is socially and environmentally uh, regenerative and, and, and compliant? No, they didn't. Did they have any vision of what a food system is? No, they didn't. So what did they do? They gave vouchers through private providers that were making 15% of that money so the people could go to supermarkets and buy from Oshan, buy from Carrefour, from Tesco, from whatever, that food that is then produced by exploiting people and so on and so forth. So that, that is the complete lack of vision and complete lack of a political understanding of, of the food system that has been evident in the last 14 months and, and that I think requires now a reorganization and requires a reorganization that cannot be, as you were saying, uh, Lucas, uh, that, that cannot be the reorganization around the city as an enclave. Like if we, and that's one of the things that the, the Rodota, like the person that, uh, whose name is in the, in, the, in the commission and who was one of the founding person in, the, in this idea of the commons, uh, he used to say, we cannot go back to medieval ages where every commune, every commune, every, every tiny city thinks about itself and that's it. You cannot create through the idea of the commons or through the idea of community, a new way of competition between people to the commune that has the highest tower or that has the biggest church or whatever. That would be not only extremely uh, problematic, but also a reproduction of the problems that we have in society. So I think that that's really like the need to, to politicize food sovereignty and to reclaim food sovereignty for what it is, which is a project that is based on social and environmental justice. So it cannot be food sovereignty if you cannot feed people or people do not have access to food because they cannot afford it. It cannot be food sovereignty if decisions are not made on the basis of what farmers want and what the dignity of their life is. It cannot be food sovereignty if there is not agroecology. So I think, again, like, like commons and like other, other, other notions is now really cool and a buzzword, but the roots of food sovereignty are political, are conflicts, are revendications, are struggles, are picket lines, are occupations, are things that you know we are not doing, assuming that we don't have to do here, 
but the struggle in Europe or the struggle around us is probably as bad as in, in, in the global south. It's just that we don't see it because every year the European Commission puts 50 billion euro, which is 47% of its budget, in supported agricultural production. So if the European Commission wasn't doing that, we would be doing picket lines, we would be doing occupation, we would be doing struggles for the food system and for food. But we don't because we have a hyper-subsidized food system uh, and, and we rely on that. So I think it's, um, it's crucial that we, that we and, and again, it had been happening a little bit in the first months of the, of the crisis where at least there was this idea of let's try to understand how the food system is related to all of that. There is Rob Wallace, like big, uh, big farms make big flu and an amazing podcast on, on secret ingredient with Rush Patel. There have been like consideration of the political nature of what was happening. But then the leap into let's organize solidarity groups and redistribute, redistribute food has been very quick. And I think it's, it's great that people organized and it's great that people acted in solidarity. But if you do that, if you redistribute excess food from supermarkets without challenging the role the supermarkets have in, in creating the poverty that you're trying to feed, we're not going to go anywhere. Actually, we're becoming even more dependent on, on that model that we should be, we should be challenging. So it's, it's, it's not easy and it's very... Well, I, I wrote a few years ago this idea of the, the, it's impolite to talk about these things because you're not supposed to, right? So you're not supposed to talk about the way in which food is redistributed or, or the way in which we are helping. But I think having looked at the response of several countries and several cities in particular, if we don't challenge that, we will never really address the reasons that make us food insecure and that make people incapable of accessing healthy food, that make the degradation of soil, that make the exploitation of farm workers and, and, and all the things that, uh, that we know that are not working in our food system. myself often like at least in this in this regard fi finding that the that the idea of rejecting actually this notion of oh we are so privileged in Europe and whatever is actually helpful because it kind of puts the finger in the wound and says like okay we're privileged by this like financial system which sort of it requires increasing exploitation elsewhere to keep itself together but if you look at like whatever like the if you have a different economic analysis if you don't just look at the money flowing through this economy but if you look at the degradation of soils here if you look and for me even more importantly like the loss of let's say subjective models for creating a thriving ecology because i mean like I, and and i totally agree with you that we don't want to go back to some sort of like patriarchal family and only like whatever only if you have seven children can you run the place and like whatever like uh the, we don't want to go back to any uh, any 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 previous society but at the same time it seems quite clear that the sort of like that the current subjective models that we have are utterly incapable while at the same time craving some involvement but are utterly incapable of sustaining like what it takes to like and then not even just work on the land but to be like 
to be implicated in that whole chain. I mean, uh, I, I I came across the statistics, the statistic recently, which I still kind of I need to look this up again because I still kind of disbelieve it. But it was from an exhibition that uh, Rim Rim Kolhas, the Dutch like architect, did in I think 2019, where he was like had this big thing about the countryside and within that like one of the facts that he put up is that i think it was like in france of the rural population i'm not sure how he defined rural population but i think of the rural population in france he said three percent worked in agriculture and in germany like two percent so it's also that the fact that we still think about this sort of like oh in the countryside they work on the land kind of thing and i mean i know this from my own experience like the the, the village on the foothills of the alps where i sort of in part grew up but when i was when I was a little child, there were like still like 10, 12 farmers in the village, like pretty small. And now there's like three. And that's still quite a lot for like, that's still a sort of an idyllic place still, even though it's it's lost like three quarters of its farmers just in 20 years. And that that there's a very peculiar thing emerging in the countryside as well that the or whatever we call the countryside it seems like these categories are even dissolving but it feels like there's there's a real uh i think if we look at our societies in that way of like how capable are we in terms of the sort of natural capacities which we've we, which we are stewarding well and the social capacities of engaging with each other and creating like the social reproduction that it takes to do this work then we're incredibly impoverished i mean jesus christ i mean they did this thing where where which was a fun uh, um publicity campaign where in <laughs> this is actually so hilarious when in april or may whenever it, it was the the asparagus season which is a big deal in germany you know white asparagus which is i mean it's that's a whole thing it's like such a it's it's such a upper middle class type of ritual as well um and uh and the asparagus season they were facing because it was the first wave of the coronavirus they were facing a severe lack of romanian bulgarian workforce and then a bunch of students very like endearingly sort of volunteered to like save the asparagus harvest and like first of all they turned out to be like utterly useless because you actually need to be like that's the mistake that we make as well like these people are even within like we don't want to reproduce just with german people the same industrial food system that currently romanian workers are running for us but even within that we have to respect the amount of skill that goes into like you have to be quick you have to be skillful you have to be like that's real manual work that's not just and 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 so you realize that all these students who for very like whatever noble reasons volunteered to save the asparagus harvest i think that was a real exposure to how bankrupt we are to in terms of like the 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 capacities that we have to even sustain this shitty model you know like let alone invent a new one but I, i i don't want to say this in a pessimistic way but i think actually like in a way like hitting that actually acknowledging that rock bottom that's that's actually one of the ways in which i actually really appreciate greta thunberg that he's that she's just like angry 
in public. And that's like, I think that's what we need. It's not like, oh, so what should we do? Okay, let's redistribute. No, like fucking angry. This is shit. Like this is, this is terrible. And, and, yeah, and just stay with that for a bit, you know, like not to, not um, just, just endure the, 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 the poverty of our own situation which doesn't mean that we're not hyper-exploiting other people in order to maintain even that poverty. But I'm tired of this gesture of like, well, but we don't have it that bad. And like, I hear it now a lot, like in Germany where like Merkel is at, at the very end of her last, her fourth term. In Bolivia, you get called a dictator if you do four terms, but here it's like Mutti who's, who saved everyone. And, and, and in a way, like it's, it, like there is this, there is this kind of idea that like, it's sort of fine to sustain the status quo because anything from like Aldi and Lidl, but also Ryanair and like the Ryanair Airbnb conveyor belt, they've sort of kept up this appearance of wealth in a society that's actually like eroding in, 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 in a real way. No, I, I agree with you. And I think that that's a consciousness of how fragile and how vulnerable and how exposed we are compared to what we thought we were probably 14, 15, 16 months ago. So I think that it's not only about food security, it's also about what we have access to, what we don't have access to, who has access to what, like what kind of job we have. I think I think there has been uh, an uh, eye-opening and, and, and a wake-up call in Europe that uh, should be leading to a much more of this political understanding of choices that have been made in the past to create a society that is fully dependent of exploitation of other people, but also fully dependent on a system that is based on expansions through debt or a paycheck-to-paycheck approach to things, right? So we always look at the United States thinking that the United States were the place where, you know, if you miss one paycheck, you're going to be bankrupt. Well, I think that Europe is going much, much more in that direction that we could that we could imagine. Unfortunately, and I think that that's, you know, in terms of macro politics, that's the failure of the left in Europe that hasn't been capable of creating a program, an agenda, a discourse that in moments like this should be bringing everyone together. And unfortunately, those who are doing that are the fascists. So you are in this moment where it's clear that most of the people who thought that they were okay, they are not in Europe as much as in the US, as much in many other parts of the world. Like I am the hyper-privileged because my job hasn't been affected and because I have a roof under which I can stay. But most of the people have been affected. Most of the people thought that one day or another something would happen and then it's 14 months that things are not happening. So that is not frustration, that anger, as you're saying correctly, Lucas, and, and I think that anger and that desperation are political possibilities. Uh, Ashil Mbembe talks about this window of opportunity. I think that talking about opportunity and the time of pandemic and millions of deaths is probably a little bit too much, but it's, it's a moment of, of reconciliation with, with, uh, with the reality somewhere way or another because we are exposed to that. And that could be an, a possibility of, of leveraging that and organizing that. And and it's not happening. It's not happening in, 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 in any of the places that I know a little bit better. And actually, it's the, it's the other way around, where 
you know, the far right or supposedly democratic parties at the end of the day, like uh, win the win the elections out of a little bit of fear and, and etc. But the program that they are trying to push forward, um, at least in, in the in the global north, this idea of we will continue grow, we will continue grow, but we're gonna do it better, like the, the build back better, all the green deal, of all the kind of slogans that now the so-called left is is pushing forward, is not addressing. This, this idea that we continue reproducing a system that is creating complete vulnerability and exposure to the slightest issue, the slightest issue that may happen on one side of the planet that is going to happen. So we are creating a society and an economy that are completely exposed to the chaos theory. So the next butterfly that spreads the wings, who knows where, we're going to be again on the same position. But this time, maybe, instead of allowing the, the workers in the port of uh, Belo Horizonte to go on strike so that our soil is not coming to Europe, next time we will make sure that there is a security guard on the port so that they're not going to be on strike. That's the kind of reactions that, we, that we're going to be that we're going to be having. And, so, yeah, and we're going to we're going to have enough toilet paper stored up, you know. Like and we're gonna this time, we're going to be prepared. <laughs> exactly. And I think and I think again, it's a it's a it's it's a political moment that I'm, I don't know I don't know in different countries, but we talk very little of politics like about politics. I think we spend the, 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 the entire day talking about numbers and figures and the people who died, and 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 that's extremely important. But I think it's the experience of Italy now where it is the alternative is between a political government and a technical government. Well, no, like it's all political and we have to all be uh, accepting that and reacting and organizing around that. And, 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 and I think that it's too late now, maybe like a year ago, people would have had more energy. I think that now everyone is, is utterly exhausted. And the only thing that people want to do is to, you know, get out of this thing, get a vaccine and then, you know, take a Ryanair flight and go somewhere else. But there has been the possibility at a certain moment, there has been the, 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 a good convergence of, of situations that could have created much more political empathy, political solidarity at the European level. We're not doing this, we're just throwing money at people and we, we assume that if we guarantee enough to people to survive, things are going to be okay. And then in two years from now, we will have like the fascists, you know, as a, as a majority party in some of the crucial countries of, of Europe. And that's going to be, you know, something that has been created today. So it's something that has been created in the last years, but something that in, in, in the last 12 months has really been being consolidated and, and, and strengthened. And it's, um, it's sad because I think, as I said before, we, you know, the, the night all always, you know, you know takes, uh, takes off when the, when the dusk has come, whatever, whatever is the heaven's metaphor. I think we are late and I think we, we have been late and we're always going to be late, but there are people around the world who have not been late because they're fighting on a daily basis. And I think that that's what we haven't, the kind of what you're saying about if we understand the gravity of the situation that we're experiencing, we could actually take some action. And there are people around the world that haven't understood the gravity of their experience and they're taking action. And I think it's, it's sort of denial or this cognitive disconnection between the way in which we are living in Europe and what actually uh, is, is done or not done at the political level that is keeping us kind of in this cozy or quasi-cozy moment of impasse waiting for the Messiah to come and save us, which is probably not um, not coming. So, yeah, so I think it's, um, 
it's a missed uh, it's a missed uh, space and 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 the the desire would have been to it's also like wrong timing like you think about a label in the uk how stronger it was uh, a couple of years ago a year and a half ago and then as soon as it you know collapsed like the pandemic comes up and and and, and you don't have the strength of labor any longer so i think that there have been timing also that didn't that didn't really work to give the possibility of a strong response like in the sort of solidarity socialist collective response to to covid one of the craziest things for me at the moment is like why are they not nationalizing all the enterprises that are producing the vaccine and just giving vaccine to everyone like it's not that you have to be a revolutionary you know whatever in order to to suggest that if there is a problem that affects the entire humanity and the problem is a patent you take that patent and you distribute it but that, even that even talking about that seems something that is you know crazy in in most of the spaces that we're now we're now occupying because because again, because it becomes a, a, result, a, a solution to a problem and not a political decision that is um, that is made. But yeah, so so that that's in general. And in terms of of food, just to try to be always talking about food, um, the the eviction of the peasants is crucial to the construction of the society that we that we know, and 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 the depeasantization that uh, Arigi writes about and Bernstein writes about as the emblematic moment of consolidation of, of industrial capitalism. So you needed empty empty fields and empty, empty countryside because you were concentrating accumulation at the level of the of the city and the enclosures. And by the way, the enclosure is crucial also to the to the reasoning around the commons and, and etc. So you, you evicted the peasants. Now there should be I think because it's the only way in which the, the, the food system can be actually socially and ecologically viable, uh, representation of, of spaces of, of production. But of course, you cannot tell people, come, I'm going to give you like five euro per hour to break your back and you're living in a, in a van and staying here for three months and then you're going. Like the representation of the rethinking about the food system is a project, it's probably a mega project that would require those billions that the commission is putting on every year and et cetera, to rethink what is production and what is distribution and what is consumption, and in particular, who is producing what and for whom. So working a little bit with you know, migrant uh, workers in the south of Italy among the most desperate and most abused conditions in the world, the first demand is a permit, the right to be where they are. The second demand is to have a contract, because if you have a contract, you have a little bit of rights. The third demand is to have a salary that is guaranteeing quality of life and the possibility of paying remittances. The fourth, the fourth is housing. So, you know, they kind of have priorities. And, and the point is, you cannot only hope that social struggle by the migrants, most of whom are illegal, don't have a permit, risk to be sent back to the country, that their struggle will be capable of obtaining social rights and political rights for them. So that, that must be like an intervention of solidarity. If you really want to change the food system, that you have to, to start from that and, 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 and recognizing who is actually working the land and how they, they are working it and providing them with working conditions that are more than enough for them to actually stay there and not being, not being exploited. 
and the same for for Germany, like the, the four farmers, like and, and finding public policies and public intervention and funds so that 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 countryside, so called, becomes something something different. And then we can open like a whole new page of the conversation. But if seventy percent of the agricultural land in the world is used to produce meat, I think that there is a lot of the, about that that has to be solved not by I'm becoming vegan, but by policies that determine how the, one of the most precious resources that we have, which is soil, is going to be put into the circle of production and, and consumption. If you just let that private decision of the market will decide if you're making soya or you're making corn or you're making food that is actually for human consumption, you will probably never end up with a solution that is social and ecologically viable. going to say something back when we were in a really dark section um, <laughs> about how bad things were um, but then but then when when Tommaso moved a bit more to, to, to talking about hope and so on I got <laughs> a bit backtracked off that but I mean part of what I was thinking about is just it, how Italy has has long been like the laboratory of the future in a really bad way. You know, in, in the 90s, you had Berlusconi was a huge prefiguration of Trump and, and what Trump has done. And also with uh, technocratic politics, anti-politics, etc. All these things of the complete uh, uh, collapse of the left. All of these things happen in Italy some years before they happen in other places. And I think right now, I mean, we were talking about it a bit earlier, but what we see is something that we've been told we can never expect, which is the convergence of the technocratic with the far right, basically. It's just announced in the last couple of days that Lega is is uh, up for supporting Draghi's technocratic government. And for so long, we've been promised that the technocratic is going to be the solution to the far right. Uh, you know, that's the case in the Netherlands with the FVD being the sort of uh, party that's going to save people from the PVV. It's it's uh, the case in um France, France, especially with, you know, Macron being the, the savior from uh, Marine Le Pen. Uh, but in Italy right now, we're seeing the convergence of, of these political tendencies, or so it seems. I mean, things can shake out a, a little bit differently, but the but the willingness of, of Lega to accept this and the willingness of the uh, technocratic uh, tendencies or establishment to to bring Lega in and to, to to take their support. I mean, where it's just tending is towards even more actual fascist or post-fascist direction in in terms of the Fratelli d'Italia. I mean, it seems to me that that that's where we're going. But I don't know that that convergence of of the far right with with the technocratic aspects of of politics just. Uh, yeah, it, it 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 came up in my mind, and I don't I don't know if you have any any thoughts about that. Uh, well, something on on that can be definitely said, and, and and I agree with you that Italy has been at the sort of forefront in terms of um, laboratory and testing and, and bringing together 
I, I also want to, to remind that Italy has been for, for decades around the 60s and the 70s and, and the early 80s at the laboratory of something completely different. So mm. we have had like two decades at least where, where Italy was the core of different ways of thinking about society, different ways of thinking about industrialism, different ways of thinking about politics. And, and I think that the two are... Well, I, I wasn't there in the in seventies, and, and and but I think that the two of them are the continuation and the somehow the existence of twenty years that challenged so much the establishment, that challenged so mm. much mm. constituted power, especially economic power, are the reason why we now are in a situation where the alternative is between a hyper pro market libertarian approach to politics where everything is about efficiency and managerialism or fascism or the two together in a way that is at the same time converging towards efficient investment of the of the resources of the recovery fund and being as xenophobic and uh, homophobic and everything phobic that you can be. So I think, unfortunately, Italy, again, and, and it's not something that I've been researching or studying, but it, it's the kind of political space where you find yourself very nostalgic of those 20 years, but also very aware of how the violence of the state has been utilized in order to crush on that experiences or those experiences and creating the condition, even like with direct dialogue with the, with the far right, the fascist and et cetera, yeah. to create the space where now like is, is where there is was this interesting, there's a very nice program on TV. If anyone is Italian probably knows that that is called Propaganda Live on every Friday night. And, and, and they were showing that the same day that they evicted in Roma the Cinema Palazzo, which is this space that for years has been occupied and, and producing knowledge and culture and spaces and kindergartens and etc., they they evicted uh, a Casa Pound uh, occupied house. So Casa Pound is fascist extreme right group. So on the same day, and probably in order to balance the fact that they were evicting the, the, the Casa Pound. So on the one hand, you see police officers in riot uh, gears and etc. forcing the people out of uh, the Cinema Palazzo, throwing uh, tear gases and etc. On the other hand, you see like three officers normally dressed, who go there, chat the people and tell them to leave. And they happily take their portraits of Mussolini out of the out of the house. So if that's the scenario, it's a scenario where you are not as you're not afraid and scared anymore of being a fascist. You're not as scared, scared and, and, and aware and, and worried anymore of being of being supportive of something that in the constitution of Italy is illegal. So you're not you're not scared of being anti-constitutional because you know that one way or another, in most of the cases, you get away with that and it's gonna be like there's gonna be this kind of easy space for you, easy way out for you. On the other hand, as soon as you try to raise a, a finger in the name of social justice or environmental justice for the matters, uh, you're accused of terrorism and et cetera. And that's really a legacy of those, of the, of the, of the 80s, of the, of the way in which also the criminal code and criminal law have been used to repress and, and, and sanction. So in that space, the, the five-star movements came out as, as a sort of 
okay, so politics is not representing anymore. Let's give this open space for everyone to be a politician because at the end of the day, politics is liquid and everyone can be a politician. But unfortunately, they didn't have that sophisticated construct. Probably they, they were not expecting to get as much as they, as they got. But even there, I think what has been happening in the last years is that everyone converged in order to squeeze them out. I think that there has been a, a, a convergence of established politics, both of the left and the right, that couldn't accept that those people and that party were in parliament. They couldn't accept the way in which they were operating. They couldn't accept what they were doing. And the media had been very supportive of, of that. And as soon as they could just trash the Five Stars movement, any member of the Five Stars movement, they have been, they have been doing that. So that convergence that has been with the common enemy that was the Five Stars uh, movement, even if earlier the Lega and then the PD actually had a, had a majority with the, with the Five Stars movement, but they couldn't really accept that there was that player in, in the parliament. That convergence is what allows today to have this group of more or less everyone that is in parliament, and we're going to be having probably a government with two ministers from one party, one minister for the other party, one minister for the other party, and a minister for the other party, and six technical ministers who probably are members of parties or sympathize for parties, but they are considered technical, so who cares? And, and I think that, that the biggest issue is that there is 240 billion euro that have to be distributed. And I think that any reasonable established politicians who knows how these things work would not uh, lose or miss the opportunity of having a chunk of those 240 billion distributed one way or another, because they can be 240 billion that really make a difference also for the next elections. So I think that this convergence is very utilitarian. Uh, this convergence is, is, is pretty much like uh, reflective of, of a desire of, of getting the, lead, the last crumbs of the pie that, uh, that, are, that is available in, in Italy. And, um, and who knows, like if, if, they, if they get voted or, or they don't get voted, if they get majority or they don't get the majority. But overall, there is, um, I think the point is, is, is again, like it's, uh, it's way more acceptable today to be a fascist in Italy and therefore to be a fascist in the government with a technical government than, than being, you know, waving any flag with a, with a, with a star or like, or, or whatever. So it's, um, it's a moment where a lot has to has been has been lost, and, and again, like the fact that we cannot be organizing physically in places which has normally been the, the way in which the left was organizing is is having a very negative impact on uh, on all of that. crisis forcing itself upon our lives in ways that are literally we're here now in 2021 and we're stuck at home like it's it's real in a way that would have sounded crazy just a couple of years ago right like most people would have said like oh yeah sure we should do something about climate change and whatever but like and maybe people even said like it was their top concern electoral wise or whatever but like this is even like this is getting real and i think that's why for me i really i really hate this 
the dominance that this idea of inconvenience has gotten on all these crises, where then we're so desperate for someone to give us a fix. These aren't just inconvenient truths that are out there that we're like, oh, we've been doing so well and this has all been so great, but now there's this, there's a, there are these mounting inconveniences. Oh shit, now I also have to like recycle and now I have to mm-hmm. also like like vote people down on social media or like install some filters and that's all really annoying and no that's that that there is a way in which these mounting contradictions are actually forcing us to see that this that this this cart has crashed to the extent that you can only start a new thing and that's really hard and i think we're really resistant to that because we would sometimes like it to be an inconvenient truth. That's part of what I was trying to get at a bit earlier about how the uh, pessimism can be incredibly liberating in a way because you're just face you're facing it and you're recognizing no this is this is not an inconvenient truth this is the impetus that that we needed all along in order to actually get the types of political mobilization going that are so so desperately needed. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's as you were saying before about Greta Thunberg and, and the way in which she's angry and, and, and constantly reminds us that the house is burning and we're just staring at it or, or Naomi Klein when, when she talks about this changes everything and, 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 and their pieces on, on how climate you know, disasters and extinctions are, are happening around us. I think that there is a level of, of, of cognitive dissonance on, on, on you are aware of that, but then you want to survive and you want to have a life that is uh, as possible and as feasible as you can. And if we keep thinking, and I think that that's like the way in which the human brain operates, if on a daily basis we think about the fact that the world is going to be a catastrophe and that the world is going to be bad and we're all going to be dying, and etc., uh, probably we are going to be living miserable experiences. And, 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 and that's what the majority of people, at least according to the studies that are used often to, to talk about this cognitive dissonance, they would be experiencing. On the other hand, I agree with you. Like if you think that the world is going to be a disaster, we can actually stand up together and try to do something that avoids the world becoming becoming a disaster. But I think that, um, and, and again, it, it really depends on where we are in the world. There's plenty of people around the world who are like on a daily basis fighting because they don't want their world to be a disaster. I was in a call the other day with someone from Solomon Islands who was telling me what the situation is on Solomon Islands and the way in which they're trying to organize. And you get people on Solomon Islands that probably contributed 0.00000 to the problems that they are facing that are up in arms all together during COVID time, trying to rescue people from hurricanes and trying to have some adaptation because they already know that the alternative is leaving their, their islands or trying to protect wherever, wherever is still there. So you have people up in arms. The point is, and I think we go back to the sort of privileged position that we've been experiencing in, in Europe that has been completely subsidized and ballooned by un and unsustainable processes of financialization or providing solutions that the day after uh, demonstrate that they don't work. And that's the kind of classic, the Dutch, uh, the, um, the Dutch curse or the Dutch um, deadlock where they build dams in order to stop the, 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 the rivers or to protect the, the cities. And then because they build the dam, the, the kind of canals grows higher when it rains. So they need to build bigger dams. But then when they build bigger dams, then there is another element as such that the water is still higher. So we keep have been living for centuries 
in this part of the world, on this base of, we don't really challenge the question, the way in which we interact with, with nature, the control, the subordination of nature, the lack of an ecology, society and nature are separated, we can control everything, we can keep growing, and we're always going to be finding the solution. And now the newest things are the carbon sequestration, the geo, uh, the geotherm, whatever, the, the geoengineering, and all these kind of quick solutions why? Because quick solutions, first of all, make a lot of money to people who implement them, but second, because they don't really require questioning the structure or the backbone of the society that we've been, that we've been building. And so I think uh, I agree with you. There is, the, there is the possibility of transforming this pessimism and this, this realization of the catastrophe and the fact that we are way beyond the edge of the, of the canyon into a positive leverage for, for organization. The point is, who is going to be doing that and who is going to be having the burden of, of doing that and, and what are you know, the alternatives that are out there? And, 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 and we probably, at least in, in Italy, the countries that I, know, that I knew better, we would have relied on the party as the kind of institutionalized space with the sections on the ground where you have this conversation that you feel that you are empowered, you participate to this group and this community that is transversal and national to be the entity then carrying forward this kind of, of uh, desires and aspiration. Uh, that has been completely dismantled in many places in, in, in Europe, at least. Uh, we are now in an electoral system in Italy where the, the people who are going to be into parliament are predetermined. You cannot even choose who you want to send to parliament. Sections don't exist. People are not going on the ground any longer. So it's a moment also of readaptation of how you do political organization and politics. Unions, in most of the cases, are struggling to retain jobs and making agreements because they know that the alternative is mass unemployment. So I think that the classic spaces of social coordination and social resistance have been co-opted or have been completely brought to, brought to crumbles. So I think that that's, that's the moment of, of reinventing. And, 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 and for most of the people, like the, and including for myself, like most of the time during my day, like the sort of, okay, whatever, it's not so bad, we will survive. It's probably the, the way in which you can, you can go forward. And, uh, and then walking up a mountain and realizing that, you know, it may be climate change, maybe climate disaster, but still like that moment of enjoyment of, you know, the ecology around you is fantastic and you can still have that. It's great. On the other hand, even in Europe, is clear that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people that are facing the effects of climate change on a daily basis. I was reading the other day, so the Mediterranean is a climate hotspot, and Italy is a hotspot of the hotspot. So Italy has the highest number of climate events, unusual climate events during the year, in the numbers of thousands. Italy doesn't have a climate strategy. So there is no understanding of the importance of having a coordinated effort and a coordinated plan to deal with at least adaptation. I'm not talking about mitigation. I'm not talking about reducing. I'm just saying we are hyper-exposed. So two days ago on the Alps, there was sun dust coming from the sub-Saharan Africa, like through winds. There were 27 degrees in some cities in Italy, and we are in the mid of like early February. So that is happening. And people were taking pictures of the mountain that looked red without thinking that that sand is going to intensify the melting of the snow, which, which means 
that's you know all the ecological processes that you that you can imagine. So things are happening out there, but we have not been provided. And I think it's it's at least I have not been provided when I was in school, and I'm not provided on a daily basis with the analytical tools and the capacity of understanding that what I see is not like an unusual event, is a cataclysm, like is 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 an emergency, is extinction. So I think that we have a lot to learn from people around the world that learned in the hard way that that is not oh, another heavy rain. That is the cataclysm. That is the end of life as they they knew and they used to experience. And because of that, they they organized. I think that in Europe, we're still in the, in the in, at least, the people that I can refer to in the communities that I can refer to are still in the, oh, whatever, it rained a little bit more, or oh, whatever, there is no snow, I cannot go skiing. So that, that is the kind of, the, the twist that you probably were mentioning, Lucas, like how do you transform that into something productive and constructive is, is by creating ecological consciousness and, 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 and political ecology uh, and, and political understanding of the, of the ecology. And I think that to close the circle, the, the university as a very privileged and, and, and elite space has something to do with that and has an opportunity to, to create this, this awareness. But I think that most of the awareness is created by the Friday for Futures you know, the children who have been striking, they've been doing more in order to create climate awareness and, and, and awareness of the ecological fragility of the of capitalism than anyone else has been doing probably in the last 40, 50 years in, uh, in Europe at least. So how to transform that into then a project of, of massive education. So we have maximum vaccination. We should have like a massive project of education of the urgency and the emergency of, of, of engaging and participating and, 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 and being actively involved, not in recycling, but really in demanding structural and radical changes. And, and again, I think the, if it hadn't been for Corona, the sort of idea of just transition somehow could have been going in that direction. The point of, of Corona and the way in which it completely subverts the, the expectations is that now is not anymore about lowering the impact that we have as Europe uh, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and trying to provide just and equitable jobs to people in sectors that are environmentally less impacting and taking them away from, from carbon intense jobs. Now it's all about regrowth or it's all about relaunching and the same idea that the plan is called recovery clearly puts at the center the economic growth and the economic expansion on the it also it's it's funny that the word cover is in there as in like let's put the cover back on (laughs) exactly exactly that's that's a good point yeah change and 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 we're gonna go and, and do the same thing over and over again and what scenario we would do what Draghi said which is whatever it takes we just throw money and then we will build higher dams and we will build like more resilient infrastructure for those who can afford it. for me really what the seeds of hope are is that it it seems like the 
the the external crisis is asserting itself to a degree that people can at least recognize the resonance between like like the not separateness between the internal crisis, whether it's in your home or whether it's in your mind or, and the external crisis. And it's something where, um, where it's maybe the only chance to get out of the, the madness of it is, and, and, and we need, I think we're going to be humbled in a way that's not going to be great. Um, but there, is a reason why we're desperately holding on to the compensatory mechanisms, which are just like, there's an exhaustion. There is a kind of like, just leave me alone, like not another political thing. And like, just, I mean, people are so exhausted with these things, not realizing that the thing, that these, their exhaustion and those things stem from the same social makeup, Mm -hmm. like the, just just uh, like technically fixing our way out of this would perhaps be the worst nightmare. Like, I think even if geoengineering worked, that would be terrible. Like I always, uh, because you would preserve the terrible human relationships that we have both globally within our circles, like the kind of the superficiality that so many people are lamenting, right? Like that's such a common lament. Then the mental health crisis and so on. Like, do we want to reproduce this at just a sustainable level? Like that's not a compelling vision for me. Like I always uh, find it really hilarious when people propose these like the future of living like a new house that is under a geodesic dome and then it has its own climate and whatever. And then it's a house for a nuclear family. And I'm like, how is this the future of living? This is like the past of living that you you're just, this is the redundancy. You're just producing redundancy of the social form while somehow controlling for all the factors, the environmental factors that are coming back home to haunt that very social form. And so that almost feels like at that point you need to let go of the steering wheel altogether. And it is a dangerous time because that leaves you susceptible to like the, like, you know, like the, 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 the Pied Pipers of, of, of the world. But it is also a time where, where somehow our social structure is crumbling, which is really dangerous, but it's also in a way, I hope that it can be, encouraging in so far as as we can take responsibility for it in a way that it's that it's not just an inconvenience that it's that it's not just another thing piled on the list of concerns but that is something that is like okay maybe this entire thing of going about this is is something that needs to be revised and i'm more concerned with like okay what what are the actual models that we're going to elaborate that that are and and the elaborating is not by the way this is where i really love moton and harney where they draw a difference between policy and planning policy is thinking for others you think they're not thinking and you think you have to think for them planning is what's already going on planning is the constant conspiring which is reduced to an almost zero degree during covid time but there is a conspiring even in your own mind, like you're even conspiring with yourself. There is a conspiring even between like you and your nuclear family that you're reduced to right now, or just your partner and you cannot go to the restaurant anymore and these kinds of things. But like, that's the only thing we have. And we have like that, it needs to start from that, like conspiring 
uh, and not thinking that the way we got ourselves into this by thinking that we could think for others and have others think for us and fix this and this is just inconvenient. We're not going to get out of this by doing more of the same thing. Yeah, I think that uh, the hope is that people will not get tired of conspiring and people will be ready to to plan as soon as the, the opportunity will uh, will come. And at the end of the day, I think there is this um, this passage in one of Aventura de Sousa Santos and thousands of articles, I don't remember which one, where it says, living life as utopia was possible, or worst scenario, you did everything that you could in order to achieve it. And I think that those of us who are in the condition of, of you know, not letting it go and, and, and not... Uh, not getting demotivated and we have the possibility because of socially, economically, financially, culturally, whatever, we are in the condition of, of reminding every single day that uh, more has to be done, that something different has to be done and, and create and participate actively in the creation of, of solidarity networks and strengthening the networks that already exist. And, and, and especially in the case of Europe, turning the, the, the eyes of the European Union towards the problems that the model has created within Europe, but at the same time showing the massacres and the desolation that would be created elsewhere if that model is not is just implemented as if it was any other solution to, to the problem. So I think that there is a strong uh, need for, for this kind of critical intervention that are not only you know, at the level of, of providing tools for, for more awareness and more social and political participation, but it's clearly being constantly reminding the decisions makers and those who are putting trillions, trillions of dollars like in Europe and the United States of the impact that this money can have and the impact that this money will, will have and, and better ways of spending this money and better ways of, of delinking from the model that they have in mind and they want to reproduce by just throwing throwing more dollars at the same the same actors. So I think personally that's that's the way in which I see it. I see that there is more uh, more need and, and of being even you know holding even stronger than than before. It's clearly that it's hard at the moment that you're doing it like through your laptop in a way that is completely depersonalized and you're not uh, uh, closing ranks with your comrades, like whatever it is, or, or doing the actions that you would be doing uh, or, or the stuff that you would normally do in order to, to feel also personally uh, uh, rewarded and personally personally comforted by the, by the physical presence of, of others. I'm, and, and I think that we can, with this maybe we can, we can conclude. I am... I have optimism because I see that my students, compared to the students that I had a few years ago, are much more aware and much more interested. And at least they see much more the importance of trying to be involved in a process of transition that has a, at least an environmental element. I think the the extra step would be to combine that environmental element with the sort of ecological element, so to, to make clear in their minds and the minds of everyone the interdependence between society and nature and how the way in which you organize society and nature uh, is actually what they should be orienting their, their attention to. Um, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's now or never, so who knows, but uh, I'm sure that you are doing it with the podcast and, and with the several other things that you're doing. And, and, and luckily, there is plenty of people around the world that, uh, that are doing that. And, and this is really what uh, gives me energy. And, 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 and also, you know, when I wake up in the morning, the, the desire to participate, because I have the luxury of doing it and not doing it. But there are 
hundreds of thousands of people every day that don't have the luxury of doing that and they keep fighting and they keep resisting and they keep you know pushing for for better ways of of, of living and for better ways of um of moving forward and i think it's uh it's through their example and through the their stamina that uh, that i get that get refreshed and i hope that i'm doing the best that I can in order to, to convey part of that energy in the work that I, that I do, including in podcasts. That is not work, that's fun. It's like the, it's like the shock of a cold shower. And I, I say that as someone who appreciates cold showers. That's, well, that's good. I think we, need, we, need, we need more cold showers. Huh? Like if we were causing our bathtub and then suddenly they take the water away, we're going to be fucked. So I think yeah. it's, uh, it's good that uh, it's actually, you know, strengthening, strengthening the body if you do like some shocks. There is uh, Nasser Taleb that was writing about the importance of, he was using the word resilience, which is something that I didn't really like, but it was showing that... Uh, by being exposed to shocks that are reasonable, like not a pandemic, uh, we create more resilient, more resilient societies and more resilient environments. So, which is also the slash and burn way in which agriculture has been happening and is still happening around the world for centuries. Like you shock and that regenerates in a way that is more resilient. So I think a shock, the shock that has a, a plan for the post shock, I think is is a shock. And, yeah, I mean, you you also see that in wildfire management as well, and like in I'm in California right now. Uh, you see more and more uh, the official forest services like uh, looking to the way that indigenous people in Northern California managed wildfire for centuries uh, before white settlement here. Um, and the the way in which the 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 provision of, of of these shocks to the local fire ecology allowed for a much uh, more sustainable way of, of living um, with fire uh, instead yeah. as well, yeah. including the fact that certain luxury homes in the middle of forest in California maybe yeah. should have never been built, and, and yeah. therefore <laughs> you want to have that and managing your fire like your your forest through fire that yeah. are living completely incompatible, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, All right, so yeah. it was such a pleasure. It was, uh, it was fun. Like it would have been way like it was, it was nice and very fun, but it would have been way better if it had been in person and yeah, the obviously. Like at the canteen or some some hipster place in Bristol. The, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because the real the real conversation only happens over dinner after the conversation. But <laughs> um, anyways, uh, maybe you'll be talking to yourself now over dinner. That's that's also a conversation. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll definitely think about all the things that I that I said and like and 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 and, and plan and strategize in my head as as you were saying. Um, <laughs> A lot with my with my brain. Yeah, I well, I mean, we're just this is just a small way of trying to have some of these conversations, and mm. I'm really happy we brought you into it. And you're, I, I still uh, take a lot of nourishment from the experience that brought us together in Bristol, and that seems like in the in the context of like global politics, that seems like borderline irrelevant. But it's exactly from these small things that there are connections emerge and then that's that's the that's the only hope we have and so mm. it's hopefully we can somehow move these kinds of gatherings in in person as well at some point and keep keep the conversation going Thank, thanks a lot for, for having me and, and and good stuff that you guys are doing and uh, and definitely the, the plan would be that 
you know, the conversation continues and that uh, we manage to transform these this spaces of, of reflection then in spaces of action. The more I see that we can create solidarity, the more I see that, you know, students and, and, and staff can operate differently in a different university, the more I'm rewarded. And I spend the whole, like, a good hour and a half with the, with the vice chancellor this morning just to, to remind him of, uh, of that. And I think that the experience in Bristol that definitely was because it was such a... Uh, a diverse and, and, and committed and energetic group of, of students that I could, uh, could participate and learn. And that kind of political space that had been created so quickly and so and so easily because things seem to be to be happening um, was a unique. And I think it's uh, it's truly missed, and I'm sure that we all we all miss it. But you know, it doesn't have to be in the same space, the same geography, the same the same picket. It can be in different ways and we will have to, to organize the future we'll we'll, we'll we'll get together again in 2030 when we all own nothing <laughs> <laughs> all right I'll, 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 welcome, I'll welcome you guys to our city fantastic <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of the Three Ecologies podcast. We also want to thank again Gaetano Fiorin for the music. You can find more of his music at SoundCloud at Gaetano Fiorin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>